Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. And thanks for joining us this week. If you've never heard of a Defense Department organization called Joint Task Force Civil Support, that's understandable. Arguably, it may be a good thing. Understandable because it may be just about the smallest task force in the military's force structure. Its headquarters at Fort Eustis, Virginia has less than 200 people working there. The reason I say it may be a good thing you haven't heard of this task force is their main mission is to organize the military's response to a chemical, biological, radiological, or nuclear attack in the United States. And even then, considering the way we handle military-civil relations in our country, those forces would be working out of the limelight. Everything they do in response to a disaster would be in support of state and local authorities, or FEMA. Joint Task Force Civil Support has a new commander, Major General Bill Hall, and he's our guest for the first part of the show this week. He joins us by phone from his headquarters at Fort Eustis. And General, thanks for taking the time. And um, and let's start out this way. I, I heard you say in a speech to your headquarters that, that you've wanted to get a chance to lead this organization ever since you found out it existed about a decade ago. So what is it about this task force or its mission that made it an attractive career prospect for you personally? Well, that's a good question, Jerry, to start off with. Um, I was fortunate enough as we built the National Guard portion uh, of the chemical, biological, nuclear enterprise to get in on the ground floor. And that's how I learned about Joint Task Force Civil Support and what they do um, here at Fort Eustis and, and potentially for the entire nation. And so when I figured that out, I went, what a great opportunity to be, you know, guardians uh, and a deterrent in the United States against such attacks. And then probably uh, also working with our state, local, and federal partners um, along with that. You know, I think uh, you saw from my, my bio that I've done a couple Super Bowls and what what amazing opportunity to come together with a bunch of different tribes to, to to work on hard problems. And so from my perspective is, you know, I saw this as a career pinnacle for me and continue to, you know, kind of push, push my career towards that direction, the command, the organization. And, and you know, nine years later, uh, here I sit. Uh, I never would have in a million years thought that's where I would end up sitting. Uh, but that's kind of what drove me to wanting to be the CG for Joint Task Force Civil Support. And for, for people who don't know, which I think, frankly, is most people who, who don't know what the mission is, say a little bit more about what the Joint Task Force is for and what it does. Yeah, I, I think I three things on that that I think I'll give you the textbook definition and I'll give you a, a, a better definition, I think. But I think the other part of that is we're relatively a young organization. Um, and we were we were uh, put into being about 19 years ago. So on the 1st of October, we've got our 19th birthday that we'll celebrate here at my headquarters at Fort Eustis. Um, I'll, I'll give you our core mission statement and then I'll talk a little bit about what that means. Great. Um, our organization operates as an expeditionary headquarters during a catastrophic event. We rapidly established effective command and control in order to save lives and mitigate uh, suffering. And that's primarily in a response to a chemical, biological, or nuclear event. However, uh, and we have in the past, we can do all hazards such as a hurricane um, or uh, something to that nature. Now, there's a definition I like a little bit better that's probably a little bit more user-friendly, and that is, is think of us as an insurance policy for America. 
um, if a great uh, grave event were to happen in the United States, it requires uh, a whole of nation response like a catastrophic uh, hurricane or a nuclear power plant um, or something that effect um, uh, had issues. And that's, that's really what I see as that, a definition, a mission statement for America to understand versus within the interagency or DOD. And I think people are pretty familiar and comfortable with the idea of DOD forces coming in to support civil authorities in the event of, as you said, an all-hazards event like a hurricane, like a natural disaster. What makes the Seaburn mission different that requires a specialized joint task force just for that mission set? Yeah, the, the, the challenge is there are some technical skills uh, required um, in dealing and operating in that environment, whether it's uh, our, our uh, warriors that do search and extraction, uh, going into the incident site, recovering uh, victims, pulling them out, you know, the ability to get in and extract them out of collapsed structures, um, and wearing, wearing the equipment required, uh, which we call it PPE, protective uh, equipment, um, taking them through our decontamination line and decontaminating them. And I'll just tell you that that part of the mission is just hard work um, that requires um, a lot of uh, stamina and a lot of discipline to work through that. And then on the backside of that, our medical providers um, that do the initial triage, do any life-saving they need to, and prep them for onward movement um, to a, a civilian facility. And then all the things that, that operate around that, you know, our aviation task force that provides uh, aviation support, um, our medical task force that provides additional medical support, and then we've got a logistics task force that helps us move things around the incident area. But there's two elements of that is, is first the technical skills required to do the search and extraction, um, to do the medical uh, with hazardous materials and the decontamination takes a lot of additional training. And the good news is we have a great model across the enterprise for how we train our soldiers, sailors, Marines, and airmen how to operate in that environment. Uh, a lot of that has been taken from the great work our first responders across the nation have done in honing those skills. And then also, from our perspective at my headquarters, how we synchronize, coordinate the actions of all those elements and ensure unity of effort uh, with our state, local, and federal first responders um, to get to the incident uh, site and be able to operate and provide FEMA to provide you know, city government, state government with the resources required uh, in order for them to respond to that event. Because I think, as you well know, we'll never be in the lead. We're in the support of whoever the lead agency is uh, to provide that. And, and I would submit to you, you know, our mission is not defined uh, in days or weeks. Our mission is defined in uh, minutes and hours and those decisions that have to be made up front on how we get forces where they're needed to ensure that we can meet uh, those needs. And that synchronization alone, I would submit, uh, is, is probably the primary reason why you need a st standing joint task force to do that versus a pickup game and going to um, a very professional organization within DOD, whether it's Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. That's why you need that. So we, we're there, we're prepped and ready to go and 
we're singly focused on one mission. The way the org chart for, for your task force is structured is a little bit interesting. And, it, and tell me if I've got any of this wrong, but the way I understand it works is not only when your folks respond to an incident are they not in charge, they are actually in support of FEMA or state and local authorities, but on a day-to-day steady-state basis, the DOD seaburn forces who would be responding to a catastrophe don't actually work for you. You don't have they're, they're not in your chain of command in so-called phase zero. So... I'm just. I just wonder what sort of challenges that presents to an organization like yours in getting ready for a cat- catastrophe like this, and if you have any thoughts about how you might approach that that whole preparatory effort differently or more effectively going forward. Yeah, you know, you you're you're right on, um, and I think the technical term we used is a a, a portion, but not a sign. Um, it. You know, when I first came into the job, I was a little concerned about that. Um, But my experience in the last 31 years has taught me, you know, we've got a formal chain of command that we follow, and then we've got the informal leaders uh, and how we actually make things done. The good news about this is our subordinates that will come to work for us um, in an incident, um, they get it. There, there's no one that's pushing back and going, hey, we don't, you know, we don't need to work together. They understand. They understand the gravity of this mission and how um, we are expected to respond. So I, I, I have no problems with how we're organizing the chain of command. Um, those commanders uh, that are on mission, the commanders that are coming on mission in the next year, they want to be good at this mission um, because. If called upon, they want to lead well, and they want to get the forces where they're supposed to be to execute the mission. So um, it's it's um, there's other ways that we could do it, um, but I would also submit to you is it unburdens my headquarters um, from the the administrative support um, to those units that would you know add. Uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of man hours to me uh, to manage, and I don't. I'm I'm solely focused on the mission uh, versus everything else that comes along with having subordinates. And we should mention you're a pretty lean organization, right? I think it's less than 200 people at the headquarters, which is yes, pretty sir. small yes, in sir. DoD terms. Yes, sir. And but I think it also plays to our favor. I mean, and one of those things is how do we lessen the footprint in the response area? If we are too heavy then we're adding a burden um, to our partners. Uh, It makes us slower getting there. Uh, And the great news is, you know, we have technologies uh, that have changed the way we do business so much um, in the last 25 years that I can literally have people back in my building and doing things that I need them to do like they're standing there next to me. So I I embrace the leanness of the organization uh, and how we place people into the JOA to provide better support versus showing up and saying, I need room for 400 people. And, you know, uh, our partners are going to look at me and like, okay, I'm struggling with other things. I don't need to figure out where to put you and 400 of your friends. So it totally makes sense to me that, as you said, members of the military know how a chain of command works. They know how command and control works. But what about, I mean, it seems super important to me also that the civil authorities that you would work with, whether that's FEMA, whether that's other federal agencies, whether that's state or locals, need to understand how things would work or how what your role would be in the event of a catastrophe, too. So talk a little bit about how you build those non-DOD relationships. Yeah, so we, we have... Um 
a chart that we use, and it's what we call our lines of effort. And there are four lines of effort, and I'll, I'll talk about two of them that I think answer your question. The first one is readiness. Second one is responsiveness. The third is relationships, and then finally unity of effort. And I think to your question, the relationship and unity of effort um, come together. And I'll just give you, uh, I'll try not to tell too many war stories um, as we go along, but I've been very fortunate in the lead up to this uh, as being uh, the commanding general of Joint Task Force Civil Support um, is I've had experiences uh, both um, in theory and application um, on how things would happen if we had a crisis. And two of those was I was the military commander for Super Bowl 45 and Super Bowl 49, and uh, great experience uh, and opportunities. And I learned some valuable lessons from both, probably the hardest ones during Super Bowl 45, and maybe not fully explaining our capability or what we were there to do. And so those lessons were imprinted on me early on that our partners have to understand our capabilities, our capacity, and where we plug in um, to them as an organization and, and understanding that we understand we're there to support them. We're not there um, to be in the lead and how we permeate that mindset within our organizations so that we're we're supporting, you know, on the ground, which will be the local incident commander, which could be the fire chief, the city incident commander, you know, the state incident commander, all the way up, so that we're providing them. And I, I, I think that mindset and how we build those relationships, and then how we educate um, the state uh, emergency managers, their local emergency managers, on our capacity and capability. And we have a very robust. Uh, outreach program. I have people on the road every single week um, focused on that. Um, we, we just came off a mission uh, and spent some, sent some folks up to the United Nations in New York uh, to be there in case something happened, but also uh, to help them understand what capacity and capabilities we had if there was an incident and being that initial link so that we didn't go from a, a, a um, unintroduced start to at least they knew who we were and they knew our capabilities if they needed us. Major General Bill Hall is the commander of Joint Task Force Civil Support. We'll come back and talk more about the task force's mission and where General Hall wants to take the organization after a short break. This is On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Major General Bill Hall is our guest for this part of the program. He is the new commander of the Defense Department's Joint Task Force Civil Support, the DOD organization that would coordinate the military's domestic response forces in the event of a chemical, biological, radiological, or nuclear attack in the homeland. So fortunately, um, actual seaburn crises, catastrophes in the United States are somewhere between rare and non-existent, which is a great thing, but it seems to me that also probably makes it super important that you develop realistic training scenarios and exercises, especially for the, the headquarters folks that are going to go be expeditionary and, and, and deploy. Um, how, do you, how do you get ready for something that is, as I said, almost, almost never happens? 
Yeah, I think there's a couple elements of that. Is, is first, are we responding to, are we up to date on the current threat? Um, and I would submit to you that the whole of the DOD um, continues to work that as a process to make sure that we're adjusting um, our uh, techniques and tactics to make sure that we're keeping pace with the threat. The second part is that we, we've got a very robust uh, exercise program um, that we execute throughout the year and I would submit to you if we've never invited you out to one of those then, then I'll extend that invitation now so you can see us firsthand and how we uh, operate in that robust uh, exercise program. But the last one is probably the most important one of theory versus application. Um, and, you know, we've got a lot of manuals, we've got a lot of orders that talk about the theory of how we would do things. And then there is the application of how we would do that. Um, from my um, experience has taught me I'm going to take advantage of any opportunity that presents itself for the members of my team, either collectively or individually, to work with partners in support of uh, events. And, and, you know, 90 percent of those are pre-planned events with a small portion of them being emerging events. For example, in the hurricane, had a small group that supported uh, my higher headquarters in response to uh, Hurricane Florence. Um, my team also was actively engaged in monitoring that situation. And, you know, and I, I came out of there with seven pages of notes of things that questions I need to ask or things that we need to work on based on the overall um, National Guard and, and active duty uh, response to that. And so it was a good opportunity to watch it from the cheap seats. And then how would we apply that? Um, uh, to being better at the mission set that we're given. So, you know, just, just backtracking is theory, um, and then how do we have the real-world application to make sure that we're keeping pace with what we need to do. Because I don't think there's anybody out there that would say that if this happens and we have to respond to a Seaburn event, that it's not going to be an operational environment that is filled with fog, friction, confusion, and then on top of that, the demands um, of our nation for us to do the right thing and, and, and to handle it and take care of it. There's going to be immense uh, pressure on, on our team uh, to do that. Yeah, let's stick with that team portion because one thing we haven't talked about in a lot of detail yet is the joint portion of Joint Task Force Civil Support. Um, talk about what the what the rest of the joint force or what the entire joint force brings to the fight. I mean, why, why would this mission not be handled just as well if it was, let's say, just an Army task force? Yeah, I, I, I'll, give you the, I'll give you the bumper sticker and then I'll try to go into a little bit of uh, detail. Um, you know, be weary of a single uh, service solution. Um, quoting my boss there um, that he likes to throw that out is, you know, as a, a young officer, not understanding Goldwater Nichols and why we'd want to do that and being an Army officer, you know, I would say coming up is, you know, the right answer was always the Army. Um, and as I mature and, and come on to my third joint assignment here, um, the capabilities that the services bring together um, outmatch anything uh, that a, a, a one service can provide. 
the other part of that is it also lessens the burden uh, on one service or another to provide resources um, to a fight. And you, you, you've seen um, our task organization and what it looks like in the units that fall up under us. But what's not there is, are there going to be other capabilities that we don't know that we need that a service may have? And being a joint organization, then I have the expertise resident that would say, you know, if we need um, additional helicopters, does it make more sense for us to go and ask the Navy for those or ask the Air Force uh, versus just the Army based on a specific skill set or capability that they have in order to provide that? Um, and I would also submit to you is it, it keeps us from having that single service uh, uh, line of thought. On top of that, I'm also extremely uh, fortunate to have uh, a high number of civilians, uh, DOD civilians in our workforce. And then that brings a whole other uh, piece to it uh, that is a force multiplier. Not only are we joint uh, as an organization, but we have a high number of civilians that have decades uh, worth of experience in this mission set. Uh, and generally, a lot of them uh, has spent a lot of time in uniform as well and retired and came to work with us. You you alluded to this briefly, but I'd like you to expand on it a little bit. As as you alluded to, you've, you're a career National Guard officer, and I just wonder how that the National Guard way of doing things or, or mentality maps onto this job and how, how you think it'll help you. Um, I think there's two things that it helps me with. Um, the first portion of it is, as you, as you know, um, on the Seaburn chemical biological nuclear response uh, enterprise is Title 32 or National Guard, which makes up uh, a little over 50% of it. And then you have the Title 10 or the active duty force that makes up the rest of it. And having experience on both sides of the fence, I think, is helpful. Um, and it also, because I did command a Homeland Response Force as a colonel, um, that I understand that half of the enterprise and I have credibility with that portion of the force. Um, on top of that, being a National Guardsman and have responded personally uh, to several events, uh, both uh, emergencies and pre-plan, having a clear understanding of expectations um, on our state and local partners, I think helps me uh, to guide the organization. And then at the end of the day, uh, I've been very fortunate in the assignments that I've had. Um, a lot of the adjutant generals in the states I know uh, personally, not all of them, but, but enough that I feel comfortable if we had to go somewhere, there would be people that I would recognize and that would recognize me and help um, lower the shields um, as we had to go into a situation to be more supportive of their um, their needs. Uh, and so I think that, coupled with understanding um, the National Guard portion of the Seaburn Enterprise, is extremely helpful. Let me, let me start to wrap us up by just asking you a general priorities and goals question, and I'm sure you've touched on some elements of this throughout the course of our conversation, but big picture, where do you see the organization now? Where do you see opportunities for improvement? Yeah, um, so I'll start off by saying I'm very fortunate to take over an organization that's on a positive glide path. I know that you've interviewed General Gallant a couple times, uh, and I was just 
tickled to death with what I inherited here uh, to move the organization, uh, the organization on the move, moving on a positive glide path. Um, there are some things um, that are important to me um, as we move forward. The first one is unity of effort. Um, I don't think there's that we can that we can ever get away from that concept um, of how we uh, ensure our organization is one that embraces the concept of unity of effort and then how we wrap that around um, the, the things we're doing. I, I talked to you a little bit about my lines of effort, readiness, responsiveness, and relationships. And the fourth one is unity of effort. And I see unity of effort wrapping through the other three and being the glue that kind of holds them together. So um, first and foremost is we maintain that unity of effort uh, as we go along. Synchronization for speed of response um, is critical. I, I believe once we get our soldiers, sailors, airmen, uh, and Marines on the ground, they will execute the mission flawlessly. The challenge becomes how do we move them from all across the nation to the incident site and ensure that they get to the right place at the right time with the right gear. Um, and that's a place that, that I will focus my efforts uh, to ensure that they're there. I mean, you know, I, the analogy I like to use is as someone that's moved six times in the last six years, you know, they come to your house and on day one and two and they pack everything up. Well, on day three, they load it in the moving truck and there's that one dude and the one guy that knows how to load everything in the moving truck and nobody else does it. And so one of our jobs is we're that one guy. How do we get all those forces from, you know, Fort wherever to the incident site and make sure they're there? So synchronization and speed of response is, is critical for me. Um, another area is our common operational picture. Um, that's a kind of the coin of the realm. Where is everybody in the space? What are they doing and how are we communicating? Again, very fortunate. Uh, I inherited a very mature process, uh, but that's something that we're continue to work on and how we change the culture within the organization that how we operate in garrison is the same as how we operate during a crisis. And I see COP our common operation picture being one of that. And then the final two uh, is interoperability. Since I left the enterprise in 2012 and re-entered it in 2018, we've made some huge strides in interoperability across the National Guard portion of the uh, Cree and, and the Title X active duty portion. But there's still some work to be done there. Uh, in theory, no matter which uh, uh, status you're in, you should be able to stand, show up and fall into a mission set and it look the same. Um, but I think there's a little work that we've got to do to ensure that that's in fact where we're at. And then the last one is, is leader development. Um, the Seaburn Enterprise is unique um, across the board. We've got some great warriors um, and we've got um, a lot of people that are out there that mess not don't necessarily we don't take advantage of their skill sets to push them into other portions of the enterprise. And one of my long-term goal is, goals is how do we take uh, an example being someone that's a member of a civil support team at a state level, how do they end up in my chair one day? 
um, and, and how do we pull together the different organizations to make sure that happens so that we're taking advantage of the many, many years of training and education that we've given them um, so that we've got the right players at senior positions uh, in the future. That's Major General Bill Hall, the commander of Joint Task Force Civil Support, joining us from the task force's headquarters at Fort Eustis, Virginia. If you tuned in late or want to hear our conversation again, you can find it at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. Short break, and when we come back, a new analysis lends some credence to the Air Force's longstanding assertion that it's too small to do everything the nation has asked of it. This is On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Jason Miller's Reporter's Notebook is the insider's guide to the federal community. Subscribe at Federal News Network. Thanks for listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Air Force leaders have been saying for the last several years that their service is too small to perform the missions the nation is likely to ask of it. A recent study by the RAND Corporation provides some analytical evidence to back that up. Using historical data on how various kinds of conflict put stresses on the Air Force, the study looked at four potential types of conflict the U.S. military might end up waging in the coming decade. It found today's force would be hard-pressed to meet demands in any of those four futures. Alan Vick is a senior political scientist at RAND and the lead author of the study. He talked with me about the findings. We didn't start with the four futures. Uh, Initially, our plan was to test the robustness uh, of the Air Force uh, flying force using the fiscal 17 force uh, across nine classes of demand because the the, uh, sponsor wanted help in understanding, uh, in testing the robustness across humanitarian assistance, conventional combat, and a wide range of of potential demands. So we had this data set of uh, almost 900 joint operations that occurred between 1946 and 2016. So we were going to simply test uh, against these classes of demand. But as we looked at the data, we found there were some really interesting variations over time. Uh, And so that led us initially to differentiate between the Cold War uh, those activities, operations that happened from 1946 to 1989, and then the post-Cold War period from 1990 to 2016, which was the end of our data set. And as we went through that, though, we noticed that those early years right after the Cold War, 1990 to about 2000, there were some unique demands in the peace enforcement world. Uh, there were no fly zones in the Middle East. There was Operation Northern Watch and Southern Watch. Uh, and, and then in the Balkans with Operation Deny Flight. So that led us to then evolve into, you know, we've got really three very interesting alternative futures here, a future that looks kind of like the Cold War, one that looks like that peace enforcement period uh, that had unique demands on the flying force, and then finally the post-9-11 uh, period of counterterror and counterinsurgency operations. So we went forward with that. It did occur to us, though, that a future Cold War wouldn't necessarily have a long proxy war like the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and those were created heavy demands. So we created an alternative Cold War future. It was the only one uh, of our futures that isn't purely based on historical data. We took everything that happened in the Cold War except Korea and Vietnam, and instead we used Operation Iraqi Freedom and the demands associated with that as an example of a modern regional conflict. 
Thus, we end up with the four futures. Okay. And obviously, we don't have time to go into a ton of detail about how each aircraft class fared in each of those futures, but I think it's fair to say it's not a real pretty picture in any of them. In in terms of the Air Force's overall ability to meet demand, I mean, so so what were some of the commonalities your analysis showed across all four of those, and what were some of the most worrisome? Well, the, the class of aircraft that uh, we call uh, command control, communication, battle management, uh, intelligence surveillance, was the, the most stressed. It had uh, both the worst uh, performance in, in, in one and the greatest um, shortfall overall. That's qu- the, quite a small class of aircraft. So that's just, they're just really, it's a small fleet. Uh, the other uh, big takeaways were uh, special operations forces aircraft and bomber aircraft were also stressed across all the futures. And I think you you alluded to this a bit, but I think one of the key points here is that when the U.S. gets into even relatively small, low-level contingency operations, if they last a long time, at least in the Air Force's case, it tends to have a disproportionate impact on, on, on the demands on force structures. Can you talk a little bit more about why that is? Yes, that was one of the uh, hypotheses we had going into the, the study, was that these long operations might be having this great impact, but we really weren't sure until we looked at the data and found that, well, there were these 54 operations that lasted longer than a year. And what was most striking is that that represented only about 6% of all the operations that the U.S. conducted in in these many years. But 76% of the demand uh, came from those long operations. So we found that when when we artificially cap the contingencies in our models so that they would last no longer than one year, the Air Force Flying Force was able to meet almost all demands. So where, where are the gaps in the DOD and the Air Force's planning process that causes them to not really account for some of those effects that you just talked about? And how, how could they do better? Right. Well, so all the services face the same dilemma, and that is uh, they, they are uh, expected to contribute to the combatant commander demands for forces for things like you know, the ongoing counter-terror and counter-insurgency operations. And at the same time, they're expected to prepare and be able to deter and, if necessary, defeat a conventional adversary in a major war. And in prior to 9-11, the demand for these ongoing things were, you know, it was reasonably high, but it's gotten so much higher. And so it's created this great stress because this, none of the services are sized to do these two things uh, simultaneously. So this really, you know, it's a classic strategy resource mismatch. You either need to be less ambitious in what you're attempting to do or provide more resources or some mix of the two. So you mentioned, you know, that all the services face similar problems. Could you use a similar modeling approach to the ones that you used for the Air Force to answer some of the same questions or dilemmas that the that the other branches might have? Oh, absolutely. And in the uh, early in the report, we, we note exactly that, that uh, you would have to use a service-specific scheduling model, and, the, you know, the particulars would be different. But uh, the Army, the Marines, and the Navy all face 
similar versions of this problem. It's most certainly not unique to the Air Force. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the plan that the Air Force, or the ambition really, that the Air Force announced last week to add 74 new squadrons. There, there's still some meat to put on the bones of, of that that request, I think. But, And I realize this is unfair because you haven't had much of a chance to um, do a detailed analysis matching those squadron types up against the shortfalls that you found. But does it seem like they're basically answering the mail in terms of that request compared to the, the shortfalls that you found? Well, I haven't seen the particulars of the analysis. Uh, I, I think the, the main difference uh, is that the Air Force uh, analysis that led to the call for the additional squadrons was primarily based on the most demanding major war scenarios where our focus in this report was more on the, these ongoing demands. Uh, they also had somewhat different categories but that said, I think uh, I can offer, you know, uh, well, uh, one broad observation that uh, the, they're generally consistent. Um, Secretary Wilson identified uh, three categories of aircraft as those that uh, w needed the greatest uh, percentage increase in, uh, in the number of squadrons. They were bombers and then what she called command and control and intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance aircraft and then special operations aircraft. And those three classes were also in the top three uh, in our analysis. So I thought that, that very broadly consistent. That's Alan Vick, a senior political scientist at the Rand Corporation. One more break, and we will stick with Air Force capability issues when we come back. Congressman Mike Kaufman joins us to talk about the service's plans to start phasing in fairly cheap aircraft to handle some of the missions that don't need a high-end fighter. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serby. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, I'm Jared Serbu. This is on DOD. The Air Force is well known for buying and flying the best and most expensive fighter aircraft in the world. But high-end isn't always better. The service wants to buy a new fleet of relatively inexpensive light attack aircraft to handle the missions that don't need an F-22 or an F-35. Aside from being cheaper to buy, those new planes are expected to cost a tiny fraction to maintain compared to a high-end fighter jet. Colorado Congressman Mike Kaufman is a member of the House Armed Services Committee and an advocate of that light attack approach. He talked with me about why he thinks it makes sense. Certainly the role that a light attack aircraft uh, would, would play would be in where you have target sets in, in, a, in a permissive environment where you don't have uh, really ground-to-air threat. You don't really have an air-to-air -air threat. Uh, Afghanistan is a great example of that. That where you've got targets that could be hit in a more cost-effective way by a light um, attack aircraft as opposed to, say, uh, an F-22 or, or an F-16 uh, or an F-35. So some of, the, some of the missions you just described seem like, at least in theory, they could be performed by unmanned aircraft, which I, I think unit cost-wise would be right around the same. So why, why is that not the answer? Well, I think when you when you when you've got a continuous you know close air support mission, uh, I think that that a, a manned aircraft at this point in time would be better. And there's another uh, issue uh, at hand, and, and that is, and, all, and also I think that that it would be better at, at mitigating uh, collateral damage uh, in terms of, of targeting. 
another issue uh, that I think is really important is that uh, for our um, countries that we're working with, uh, that we're allies with, that let's say developing countries that could never afford an F-35, but but certainly can't afford and have the technological, the technical wherewithal to uh, fly and, and maintain uh, one of these light light uh, attack aircraft. That creates a, a, an opportunity for those countries to buy this particular aircraft, and, and just the economies of scale in terms of production would bring down the per unit cost. But more importantly, what it would do by virtue of them flying an aircraft that we're also flying is it creates a military-to-military relationship, which I think helps us in terms of our overall security interests, as well as the relationship with the respective country. There, there's been so much emphasis on the part of DOD and, and frankly, on the part of Congress lately that we are going to need to get ready for a high-end fight against a near-peer adversary. But it seems like at least part of the assumption here is even while we're doing that, there's going to be an ongoing, maybe perpetual need to also be engaged in Afghanistan-like low-end fights. Is that right? Yeah. When you're talking about uh, low-intensity conflicts and, and conflicts, uh, in, let's say, of a a counterinsurgency, counterterrorism nature, uh, and an aircraft like this would be essential to have as part of the mix. you have any particular views on how big this fleet should be or, or what proportion of the overall Air Force inventory it should make up? Oh, the Air Force is doing an analysis right now, so I, I want to see what they're, what they're willing to do. I think the big thing is, is let's have it be part of uh, the mix. Uh, right now it's not part of the mix at all. And I think that that's a, I think that's a very important first step. I think from there we can determine uh, whether we should expand to what extent we should expand it. But I think threat, threat scenarios are always changing, always evolving, uh, and, and so this would be part of the mix. And in terms of, you know, how many of, you know, what is the the relative difference in terms of low intensity uh, conflicts versus uh, where versus peer to peer, or peer to near peer. Uh, that will certainly drive that that number. Uh, but again, I think it's just it would be a huge plus to us, particularly for uh, developing countries that um, don't have the money, don't have the sophistication to buy advanced the, the advanced weapons, and don't have the threat scenario to warrant it anyway. Uh, to be able again to to buy um, a light attack aircraft from the United States. The uh, the Air Force told us last week that they're planning on using 804 authority, which just for our listeners is a sort of experimental authority that that you folks in Congress provided DOD to completely bypass essentially the the DOD 5000 system and and buy things quickly. Does this this sort of platform seem like the right fit for that authority? Um, probably not. Simply because I think that you know when we look back, uh, things like the MRAP where we were engaged in significant hostilities uh, in um, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, and we needed to develop uh, of this mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicle uh, without going through a very, very lengthy procurement process. That expedited process, I think, you know, saved the lives of troops. This, uh, I mean, you could you you can use these adv- advanced aircraft to knock out targets that you you probably could hit with a light attack aircraft at a much lesser cost. To give you an example, that last uh, last November uh, in Afghanistan, an F-22 was used to strike a Taliban drug lab 
the estimated cost, operational cost for the F-22 can go as high as $70,000 an hour, whereas for a light attack aircraft, it's about $2,000 a flight hour. And so, I mean, besides looking at the cost of the aircraft, that is, that is a significant number in terms of the operational cost. So certainly we can save money. It, it is, it, you know, we can hit these targets right now, you know, with the advanced weaponry. It's just not necessarily cost effective. Uh, but I think that, that this is something that certainly should require, you know, authorizing authority uh, from the uh, House Armed Services Committee and the Senate as well. Even if they chose not to use that 804 authority, how important is is it to you that they move somewhat quickly on this? And 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 how quickly, realistically, do they think? Do you think they can start to procure? Landmark? Well, I think I think pretty quick. I think the fact that we have, um, I know the Marine Corps uh, is concerned, has expressed a concern about um, uh, whether or not the aircraft would be durable enough structurally to, to take off and land in unimproved airfields, uh, that obviously affects the weight of the aircraft. That's, that's, uh, um, that's something that the Air Force is considering between the, the lighter model, uh, which does not have that ability, and the heavier model uh, that does. And so it would be better, I think, just to have one you know, aircraft that's, that's for procurement would obviously be more cost-effective than, than having two variants of, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the light attack aircraft, but I don't think, but the Air Force is in the testing uh, process right now. But the fact is that, that you know, it's, it's a matter of production. The fact that it's, it's not R&D anymore. We have two prototypes that are, that are in fact operational. Right. Last question before I let you go, sir, which is how does this play in with the pilot shortage issues? I mean, the Air, the Air Force is already having trouble retaining enough uh, people to, to man the platforms that they've got. So in what ways do you think adding a whole new aircraft type hurts or helps with those challenges? Oh, I don't think it, it, it affects that area. Uh, the fact is, I mean, we have a terrible pilot shortage that we're losing uh, our military pilots at the 10-year mark uh, who are going to commercial airlines and, um, you know, that's uh, something we have to pl- fix as a country in terms of addressing the pilot shortage uh, to stop that. And so, uh, uh, but I don't think that this necessarily uh, would put a dent in the pilot shortage. I mean, these pilots, quite frankly, when they hit the 12-year mark, would be attractive as any other pilots in terms of civil av- aviation uh, as it stands right now. I mean, they're, the the airlines are even recruiting aggressively, um, uh, not just fixed-wing pilots, but uh, fixed-wing jets, uh, but, you know, uh, um, fixed-wing, these, these light attack, fixed-wing propeller, as well as rotary aircraft. So uh, it is uh, it's pretty tough right now, pretty, pretty tough environment. But we need to address that as a country to figure out how we're going to bridge this, this shortage. That's Colorado Congressman Mike Kaufman talking with me about the Air Force's light attack aircraft plans. Just before that, Alan Vick from the Rand Corporation on his new analysis showing the Air Force really might be too small to perform any of its foreseeable missions. Earlier in our program, we talked with Major General Bill Hall, the new commander of DOD's Joint Task Force Civil Support. If you missed any of those conversations, this week's full program will be in our podcast feed. Search for On DOD in Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbia. So You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 